All righty. You guys ready to get started? Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. The title of today's message is Chosen by God. An obvious fitting title for a section of scripture such as this. This morning I want to begin with a recent comment from one of my sons. I want to use it to set the stage for what I think can be a helpful mindset for us as we approach the scriptures here this morning. A perspective I hope challenges us to come with that right mindset to a high and lofty and weighty passage such as this. Well, that said, he recently told me how only now he's come to a better appreciation of some of our parenting in the past. And if my wife were in the room and every parent here can attest to, some days are better than others for us all, huh? He went on to insinuate that in the past there were times when he did not fully understand what was being communicated to him. Or he understood, but he just felt there was a better way. <laughs> How many of us parents have felt that um, weight or trap with parent or children at times? Nevertheless, over time, and through his own experiences, he learned and gained a a greater appreciation of some of those past decisions. You see, for us all, we know life is about learning and growing along the path. I'm sure we all could share numerous examples of how we began certain experiences with fear or uncertainty or misunderstanding. But then over time... And through a myriad of sources, perhaps instead of fear, we gained confidence. We gained certainty. We were more aware of truth, which we thought was somewhat of a misinterpretation or misunderstanding from the past. In some cases, it's not a complete 180. We come to some topics as though we already have a certain understanding, but along the pathway of life, we grow in our understanding of what we already, on some level, understood. From a theological perspective, there's no difference. None of us come to be theological geniuses, if you will, when we first receive Christ. Salvation and sanctification are indeed once and for all. Yet, we all know that sanctification, growth in holiness, is a lifelong commitment. It's a process as well. With that said, this morning we come to a certain theological topic that can be a challenge for any man in any area of his sanctifying journey. As we come to the doctrine of sovereign election in our exposition of the text, 
would we remember? Life is a journey of growth and learning. For many of you here today, I'm sure that you already have come to realize this glorious truth that is not just in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, but throughout so much of the pages of Scripture. You fully are convinced, as our title states, that you were chosen by God in eternity past. You fully understand that you brought nothing to salvation except your sin. For you, for me, I hope and pray that these next two weeks will only serve to further enhance your appreciation of this high and lofty topic. Maybe for others, regarding this topic of election, you're in that unsure stage of Christian growth. Fear not, good friend. You are not alone. And you are loved right where you're at, right now, even in that unsure stage, if that's what we might call it. Be that as it may, my hope for the next two weeks is that you have an experience similar to that of my son. That through the exposition of God's word and the illuminating work of the spirit, you'll experience that 180. Perhaps even produce a new and greater level of appreciation and passion and worship of this great God in whom we serve. When it comes to our encouragement, this truth is one of the grandest indeed. Charles Spurgeon described our opportunity for edification as follows, and I quote, Whatever may be said about the doctrine of election, it is written in the word of God as with iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. To me, it is one of the sweetest and most blessed truths in the whole of Scripture. Those who are afraid of it are so because they do not understand it. If they could but know that the Lord had chosen them, it would make their hearts dance for joy. Friends, I want us all to dance for joy in light of such a topic as this, an awe-inspiring, motivating doctrine, which we'll see not just this week, but specifically next week. In order to do that, as I've mentioned several times, I want to take two weeks. It was, became obvious as I was working through the text that this was not going to be possible within just one week. Today we'll answer three questions from this text. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. What is the act of sovereign election? What is the result 
of sovereign election. And then number three, what is the purpose of this election? Next week, we'll take some time to review some common misunderstandings or some objections to this topic, along with how election, and even more importantly, serves as an incredible, and I've used this phrase before, I like it, lightning rod of life application for us. And that will be for next week. So, are you ready for your hearts to dance? Please stand with me. As we read the text for this morning, I'm going to include verse 3 as we've referenced in the past. Verse 3 begins this long sentence through verse 14. I'll read verses 3 through 6 with our exposition being solely focused on verses 4 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Thanks be to God for his word. You may be seated. Our first question to deal with here this morning is, what is the act of sovereign election? First off, when you think of the significance of Paul's beginning here, last week we saw the importance of God's initiating calling, God's initiating grace, and then God's initiating blessing in that introduction to the letter. And then, after laying the groundwork for his extended description of every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, what does he begin with in verse 4? Just as he chose us in him. Given the challenges that this church was facing, Of all things that he could choose to begin with, why would he choose this? Why not he begin with the blessing of their choice? Why not he begin with the blessing of their commitment to follow Christ? Well, I would argue, what better way to crush any notion of pride or boasting than to unambiguously communicate they were chosen by God. To rephrase it, they had nothing to do with their standing. Now, what was their standing? We saw this in verse 2 from last week. Paul referred to them as saints or holy ones, faithful 
in Christ Jesus. So, from a simplistic perspective, what is the act of sovereign election? It is God's choice to save sinners. As simple as that, even this word, choice, here in the original language, takes the choice a step further than just a typical or standard choice. This is one with significant preference. There's something special about this choice. It's like no other choice. There's clearly an emphasis upon the elect alone. This is even clearly magnified within the text and the use of the personal pronouns throughout. Blessed us, chose us, predestined us, freely bestowed on us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 16, many of you are familiar with it. The words of Christ himself confirm this unique Special and perfect election. When he said, you did not choose me. But I chose you. And appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. In 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 13, which many of you are familiar with as you work your way through in your Sunday school classes. Paul, much like he did in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 3, encouraged and urged the church in Thessalonica to bless the Lord because of this glorious truth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 reads, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. In verse 5 of our passage, he continues to communicate this special, distinctive, and significant choice of God for salvation. Look with me at the first half of verse 5. He says, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Going back to our Spurgeon quote, there's no getting around it. Whether we love it, whether we're a little unclear about it, or unfortunately for some, dislike it, there's no getting around the fact that God has clearly revealed in his word that he predetermined to save us. And oh, by the way, Let's not forget the when in that equation. In verse 4, he says, before the foundation of the world. Even when describing the birth of the church, listen to what Luke states about this election in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. He said, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. This is is clearly one of the tremendous fruits of this doctrine. Yet then he goes on to say, and as many 
as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Or, even just a couple verses later in our chapter of Ephesians 1, look at verse 11. And we'll get there in more detail in the weeks to come. He states, Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. Now, concerning this inheritance, the picture only continues to be on display within our passage as well. Look again at verse 5. The beginning of that verse reads, He predestined us to adoption as sons. Adoption being the word that I want to focus on. It's clearly a beautiful and perfect illustration for what Scripture teaches concerning sovereign election. What choice, what decision, what capability does the child bring to the table in natural election? Absolutely nothing. It's an act of special and specific love that's freely bestowed upon that child. For some of you here within this room, you have an even deeper appreciation of this natural election, so to speak. As you have participated in this act of adopting a child. That said, let me throw a curveball into this for the sake of argument. Might we say that the adopting parent chose to pass over others? Of course they did. They don't have the capability or the means to adopt all those in who they would choose to do so or desire to do so. That said, if we're equating this illustration with God, that immediately begs a question. What about those who were passed over? For the adopting parent, as I alluded to, surely this is appropriate. But what about God? Does this in any way communicate that He is unfair or that He is unloving? Well, I promise you, I won't leave you hanging too long, but I have to leave the majority of that answer for next week. That said, let's say this for now. None of us truly desire fairness as the arbiter. Especially giving who we are apart from the grace of God. All of that to say, 
Adoption is a perfect illustration which surely helps our understanding for what Scripture teaches concerning election. And that said, before we move to our second question, we need to address one other elephant in the room, if you will, concerning this topic. Look again at verse 5 before I address it, and I want to read the verse in its entirety. Paul states, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Now, regarding this other aspect, Unfortunately, there is a common misunderstanding when it comes to this doctrine. The misunderstanding stems from a word known as foreknowledge. In an attempt to appease one's finite mind, the argument is made that God looks down the corridor of time and is able to see who will choose Him and therefore this is why He elects them. This is a common belief for why God elects. Now, next week, I'll address thoroughly why this simply cannot be true. But for now, let me briefly address it. From a basic perspective, verse 5 is enough. You can see Paul's use of the preposition according to. This is in order to indicate what is the motivation for God in his election. Why and how did it happen? It's because the kind intention of His will. This election has nothing to do with the will of man. It has everything to do with the sovereign prerogative of God. Even this word, kind intention, in the original language, communicates more of what is him. What's more, as you can see in verse 6, as we read, his grace, and here's the key word I want to emphasize, was freely bestowed on us. That is to say that it had nothing to do with man or, as some would say, a foreseen faith. It's all about what pleases Him according to His will. Now in speaking of this divine will and kind intention, and sovereign election, listen to Jesus' words. In the Gospel of Matthew, turn there. I want you to see it in the text. Keep your hand in Ephesians. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. Verses 26 and 27. 
Jesus states, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So, as a sort of summary, or we might say theme, for this passage and this first question, let me give you a simple and complete definition of the act of sovereign election. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write this down, and I'll speak slowly. Election is the predetermined choice of God alone according to His will to save sinners before time began. That is, election is the predetermined choice of God alone according to His will to save sinners before time began. For that plain and extraordinary truth of Scripture, we can, as Paul stated, to begin this sentence, bless the Lord for every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. What's more, we can find great application and great results because of it. And that's our second question to answer here this morning. Number two, what is the result of sovereign election? Look again at the purpose clause of verse 4, beginning with that word, that. He says, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, this is clearly essential for one monumental truth. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And yet, even given the context of Ephesians, what do we know about man? He's far from perfect. He's actually a child of wrath by nature. Oh, but God. Amen. He chose us that we would be holy and blameless. Another reason to rejoice in this doctrine of sovereign election, if I were to use another Spurgeon quote again, and I'll paraphrase it, he said something along the lines of, Thanks be to God that He chose me before I was born because He never would have chose me after I was born. We all understand that. Nevertheless, if you're in Christ, you can rest assured that the work He began, He will complete in perfection and in holiness. Now, concerning this phrase, holy and blameless, Paul only uses it three times in all of his writings. 
obviously, within our text here this morning. But I want to look at the other two as well briefly. Turn back. I'm sorry, I should say over. To Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. <laughs> In the correlating prison epistle, Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, we're talking about this phrase, holy and blameless. He says in 21, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, there's that depravity. There's that child of wrath by nature. In verse 22, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless, beyond reproach. So, not only was the Father's election before time began a part of his definite and specific plan, likewise, the Son as well accomplished a definite plan, a definite reconciliation through his shed blood on the cross. Some of you might see the seed that we planted last week in that unity of the Godhead in just those two references. More on that when we get to verse 7 in the topic of redemption, which is accomplished by the Son. And then, one other time, back in our epistle, Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 27, this phrase, holy and blameless, Paul says that we might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So there's definitely a sense in which the church will one day fully realize what it means to be holy and blameless in our day of glorification. Nonetheless, remember these believers and how Paul addressed them even when receiving the letter. He called them saints or holy ones. We, just as much, understand this positional Today, result of sovereign election. We're blameless. We're holy ones. Because Christ has taken the curse and the stain of sin on our behalf. Amen. I love that 2 Corinthians 5.21 passage when... Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Substitutionary sacrifice. 
We're indeed positionally holy and blameless even today before our God because God chose us in eternity past. And then one day, because of sovereign election, we'll surely stand in the presence of his glory, prostrate before a holy God, fully and perfectly blameless forever more now I want to come back to this word adoption where we first used it in regards to the act of election I want to use it now in regards to the result of election a result I promise you that will have your heart dancing for joy All of us as believers fully understand and remember our previous lives apart from Christ. Lives that were helplessly enslaved to burdens such as guilt, anxiety, depression, idolatry. We could go on and on and on with the works of the flesh, which each and every one of us as believers can reflect and remember that life enslaved to sin. What's more, we were imprisoned, if you will, imprisoned in a slave camp, I'll call it under the control of the ultimate slave driver himself, the father of lies, Satan. Thanks be to God, as believers, we've been redeemed and rescued and chains broken. Be that as it may even for those of us as believers, we still wrestle with the flesh, at times succumbing to the bondage to sin. And given those realities, let me encourage you with this glorious result of election found in adoption. In order to do that, I want to look at two other scriptures that lay this out perfectly for a taste of this wonderful comfort. This time, turn back. Keep your hand in Ephesians, Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. We preached through this this past Christmas. Paul says here, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. There's that bondage. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as 
sons. Glorious, edifying, encouraging truth concerning our adoption, this result of sovereign election. One other. I want you to see it on the pages of Scripture. To be encouraged here this morning, turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 15. You'll know it. But we're tying it together concerning the benefit of adoption and this result of sovereign election. Romans 8.15 reads, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba. Brother and sister in Christ, when you feel the temptation to succumb to the bondage of sin, remember the result of God's electing love upon you. You are an adopted child of God, an adopted child of the King. You're entitled to an inheritance that was predestined for you. All privileges have been freely bestowed on you. Yes, privileges that surely pertain to your final inheritance to come. But at the same time, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places that allows you to live with conviction even in the here and now. And back to our passage in Ephesians, if you haven't already. Look down in chapter 1 and verse 18. Listen to Paul as he communicates his prayer for this church concerning many of these glorious truths that we'll unpack throughout the weeks to come. Verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That you might know the hope of his calling, the glory of the riches of the inheritance reserved for you. Now, before we move to our final question, I want to come back to this slave camp illustration. Unfortunately, for some, in a room this size, perhaps you still feel the constant pressure of bondage to sin. That word constant being key. Perhaps your life is one which practices sin. And those that have been with us through our study of First John understand what that entails.
Friend, let me say with all my heart, if there is anyone here where that is the case, you will never escape the bondage of sin unless you confirm your calling and election, as Peter states. How do you do that? It's simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Hallelujah. As the evangelist D.L. Moody once said, the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. Friend, if there is anyone here today, would you come to Christ? Would you experience redemption, rescue, and freedom from the bondage of sin which you know entangles your heart constantly and daily? Would you experience this precious adoption as a result of the sovereign election of God? So, let's turn this ship towards home and briefly deal with the final question, the purpose behind it all. And that's number three. What is the purpose of sovereign election. I'm excited. Although I will be out there. I'm going to probably sing it. Out in the foyer. But since I've been here. We have not sung the doxology. As a fitting conclusion. To our service here today. We will sing the doxology. Praising God. From whom all blessings flow. Why do we praise God from whom all blessings flow? We've mentioned this before concerning this word doxology and the song that many of us have sung since we were we little ones. But the word comes from the Greek word which refers to glory. Why do we praise God? It's because as for us, Everything we do should be for the honor and glory of Him. As for our Lord, it's exactly the same. Everything He does is for His glory. When it comes to this tremendous passage, listen to the purpose of sovereign election throughout. In verse 4, he says, just as He chose us in Him. Then he goes on to say that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. 
in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. That's fascinating. Even this verb that is used in verse 4, to choose. It's a very uncommon verb in the Greek language. It's reflexive. What is reflexive? It's nothing more than the fact that the action that is committed by the subject is also received by the subject. Who is the subject but God alone? God chose us and he did so for himself and for his glory. Hallelujah. We are surely a people for his own possession. As we see in Titus 2.14 or throughout numerous examples, even within the Old Testament. Even this purpose alone should be a helpful clue for us regarding a biblical, God-centered understanding of the doctrine of election, His choice according to His will and for His glory. So, as I stated, next week we'll deal with some common objections or misunderstandings offered against this doctrine. What's more, and perhaps even more importantly, will deal with how it serves to empower and embolden the church. That's what we want more than anything, do we not? Not just to be a theological professor, if you will, but men and women who walk the talk. With that said, as we close and pause with a final reflection on the act of sovereign election, the result and then the purpose, I want to leave you with a quote from the late 19th century South African pastor and missionary leader, Andrew Murray. Beloved, as you hear this quote, this is a proper response to this high and lofty topic. Andrew Murray stated, and I quote, The highest glory of the creature is in being only a vessel to receive and to enjoy and to show forth the glory of God. It can do this only as it is willing to be nothing in itself. That God may be all. Is that your heart, beloved? Water always fills first the lowest places. The lower, the emptier a man lies before God, the speedier and the fuller will the inflow of the divine glory. The lower 
and the emptier a man lies before God, the speedier that glory flows through him. It's topics such as this that calls us to say, I boast in my weakness and in Christ alone. Because in my weakness, the strength of God and the glory of God is magnified beyond all. Good stuff. Would you bow with me in prayer? Dear Lord, as we bow our heads before you in humble submission and prayer, Lord, we look forward to the day where we will bow at your feet, prostrate upon the ground, before the Lord of lords and King of kings. The one in whom conjunction with God the Father and the Spirit before time began saw fit with a specific and definite plan to elect, to redeem, and to seal a people for your own possession. Hallelujah. We worship you. We glorify you and we lift up the name of Jesus Christ above all other names. And it's in that name that we pray.